listening to the sermon podcast of Brockport First Baptist. We are a progressive American Baptist congregation located about 20 minutes outside of Rochester, New York. To learn more about our church and support our ministries, please visit BrockportFirstBaptist.org. Our scripture reading this morning is Mark 14, verses 53 to 65. They took Jesus to the high priest, and all the chief priests, the elders, and the scribes were assembled. Peter had followed him at a distance, right into the courtyard of the high priest, and he was sitting with the guards, warming himself at the fire. Now the chief priests and the whole council were looking for testimony against Jesus to put him to death, but they found none. For many gave false testimony against him, and their testimony did not agree. Some stood up and gave false testimony against him, saying, We heard him say, I will destroy this temple that is made with hands, and in three days I will build another not made of hands. But even on this point, their testimony did not agree. Then the high priest stood up before them and asked Jesus, Have you no answer? What is it that they testify against you? But he was silent and did not answer. Again, the high priest asked him, Are you the Messiah, the Son of the Blessed One? Jesus said, I am. And you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of the power and coming with the clouds of heaven. Then the high priest tore his clothes and said, Why do we still need witnesses? You have heard his blasphemy. What is your decision? All of them condemned him as deserving death. Some began to spit on him, to blindfold him, and to strike him, saying to him, Prophecy. The guards also took him and beat him. The word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. And thanks, Bobby, for that reading. So before we dive in, um, just a quick reminder that Sermon Talkbacks are back next week. Um, Can I get a woohoo for that one? Yay! Excellent. Uh, we're going to be, so how this works, it's been, it's been since pre-pandemic that we've done an in-person talk back. Uh, we will be hanging out in here in the sanctuary after worship. Anyone who wants to be part of this for a little Q&A, discuss the most recent uh, sermons, any kind of questions, everyone's welcome for this, all ages. Uh, I'm sure my kids will probably be doing laps around the sanctuary uh, while we're here. Um, it should be a really good time. That's happening next Sunday after worship. For today, though, we are looking at the trial of Jesus, and I've titled this sermon, When Justice is Unjust. For the last few weeks, uh, we've been looking at the final act of Mark's gospel, the last 24 hours or so of Jesus's life and his journey to the cross, and today we're talking about his trial. Um, just to kind of catch you up, especially if you, if you haven't been here, if you missed some sermons, at this point, Jesus has already been arrested, right? Judas sold him out. Uh, The disciples have scattered, although Peter is sort of following at a distance. We'll get to Peter next week. Um, And we're told that Jesus is taken to the house of the high priest, where the chief priests, the scribes, and the elders have all gathered. Now, we've talked about these three groups before, the chief priests, scribes, and elders. They've come up over and over again in Mark's gospel. He mentions them almost always together, chief priests, scribes, and elders. 
And that's because these are the three groups that make up the ruling body of Jerusalem. Does anyone remember what that's called or want to guess? The Sanhedrin, that's right. The chief priests, scribes, and elders are the Sanhedrin. You got the priests, that's kind of obvious. Um, scribes would be like your religious scholars, basically, your theology professors, Bible professors, um, and elders. This is the ruling body uh, in Jerusalem. These are the people who start throwing a bunch of theological questions at Jesus when he gets to the city, a bunch of litmus test questions, trying to sniff them out. Uh, these are also the people that Jesus is calling out when he, when he marches into the temple and starts flipping over the tables, right? That's the Sanhedrin. It's a body of 71 people, all men, because of course it was, um, and they had a surprising amount of power. Sanhedrin oversaw day-to-day -day life in Jerusalem. They uh, adjudicated civil disputes, so like if you were suing your neighbor or something like that, you went to the Sanhedrin. Uh, they regulated all things having to do with what was going on in the temple, uh, religious festivals, holy days, that sort of thing. Uh, they also tried criminals, especially anyone accused of violating religious law, which back then was pretty much everything was religious law, right? Like it was all kind of intertwined. The Sanhedrin couldn't impose the death penalty. Uh, that's important to know for, for what's coming soon. Um, but if someone was found guilty of some really bad crime, the Sanhedrin could hand them over to the Romans to be executed. And again, foreshadowing. Don't want don't to spoil where this is all going. But the Sanhedrin, in a nutshell, was the criminal justice system of Jerusalem. They were charged with distinguishing the guilty from the innocent, upholding fairness, and maintaining law and order. That was their job. And as brutal as the ancient world was when it came to this kind of stuff, and it was a brutal time, make no mistake, Jewish law actually took criminal justice really seriously. It's a big part of Jewish law of Torah. I think a lot of times we assume, you know, from the 21st century looking back, that it was just chaos back then. You could be stoned to death for practically anything. That's not really how it worked, though. You had a system, a structure in place that was designed to protect the innocent and ensure fairness. That system completely fails Jesus in this story. Mark lays it out in a way that would have been, like, really obvious for anyone who lived back then, anyone who was familiar with this system and how it worked. We aren't as familiar, so we have to do a little catch-up. Um, but suffice it to say, at the start, the trial of Jesus violates every norm, every law, every stopgap that they had in place back then to make sure that the innocent were protected. For one, Jesus' trial happens at night. It's the first way it breaks the law. That's illegal could not try people at night, according to Jewish law. Had to be in the daylight, in kind of public view. There's no secret trials. Uh, the trial also takes place in the house of the high priest. That's also illegal. Trials had to be conducted in the temple. There was actually a special hall, a special room, basically in public view, where trials like this would happen. So that breaks the law. The trial of Jesus is also happening over Passover, right? It's Passover. It's a religious festival. It's a holiday, which means that it's a day of rest. No work, no formal business, no proceedings, no trials on the Passover. And remember, this is the Sanhedrin. They're the people charged 
with enforcing rules around sacred holidays and festivals. You get caught working on the Passover, you're going to have to answer to the Sanhedrin who are now working on the Passover. Are we kind of connect? Are we following this? Are we connecting the dots with how backwards this is? Yeah. <clears throat> this whole setup breaks the law, and we haven't even gotten to the actual contents of Jesus' trial itself. The trial of Jesus is an absolute mess. I want to read part of this uh, passage again. Mark 14, beginning in verse 55. Should be up there. Perfect. Now the chief priests and the whole council were looking for testimony against Jesus to put him to death, but they found none. Time out. (laughs) That should be the end of the trial, right? Yeah, I just want to make sure we're all paying attention. Uh, Verse 56. Many gave false testimony against him, and their testimony didn't agree. Some stood up and gave false testimony against him, saying, We heard him say, I will destroy this temple that is made with hands, and in three days I'll build another not made with hands. But even on this point, their testimony did not agree. So you got a bunch of people accusing Jesus of a bunch of different things, and their testimony doesn't line up. They can't even agree on what he actually did wrong. That's an important detail. Because the Jewish law spoke to this explicitly. A lot of times when we talk about Jewish law, uh, we're kind of talking about a mix of like scripture, oral tradition, norms, best practices. But this one's actually in the Bible. Uh, Deuteronomy 19 verse 15. A single witness shall not suffice to convict a person of any crime or wrongdoing in connection with any offense that may be committed. Only on the evidence of two or three witnesses shall a charge be sustained. It, it reads like a legal code, right? Very, very legal-oriented. Obviously, it's the law. You need at least two witnesses, preferably three, to convict someone of anything, and their, their testimony, their, their statements have to line up. Deuteronomy actually goes on to say, Um, That if you accuse someone of a crime and you're found to be lying, if your testimony doesn't line up, then you get punished for whatever offense you accuse them of, because it's the Old Testament, so of course. Um, But again, none of these laws are followed. None of it. Mistrial, yes. Today we'd call that a mistrial. Well, hopefully, today we'd call that a mistrial. The entire thing breaks the law. The system put in place to protect the innocent and ensure fairness completely fails Jesus in this story. The Sanhedrin go into the trial knowing the outcome they want, and they stack the deck in order to get that outcome. Maybe this is why Jesus doesn't bother defending himself, right? He remains silent amidst all these accusations because he knows where this is going. He knows the trial is a fraud. That might be our first tiny bit of application from this passage. When you are being attacked or accused by someone who's coming at you in bad faith, someone who's already kind of convicted you in their mind, there's no need to defend yourself against that sort of thing. How often do we get sucked into these arguments? Maybe it's online. Uh, maybe it's like a family member or a coworker who likes to provoke you. If you're anything like me, I dive right in because I love a good fight. I love to argue. Um, I want to convince that person they're wrong, show them that I'm right, defend myself. For some reason, though, that never really works out. <sighs> Go figure. If someone's coming at you in bad faith, don't even engage. 
hit the block button, delete the comment, walk away, or just pull a Jesus and like stare at them blankly like they're a moron or something. Like that's also an option. Um, Jesus doesn't respond to his accusers, but he does respond to the high priest. After the second time, he gets addressed directly. Um, Check this out, verse 60. Then the high priest stood up before them and asked Jesus, Have you no answer? What is it that they testify against you? Jesus, can you sort this out for us? But he was silent and did not answer. Again, the high priest asked him, Are you the Messiah, the Son of the Blessed One? Jesus said, I am. Now, pause. That is a solid translation. That is accurate, probably the clearest and best way to translate this passage into English. But there's another option that's way more snarky. Do you guys want to hear the snarky version of this? Can we do this? It's in the slides, so we don't have a choice. Um, The the first thing you've got to know is that the New Testament was written in Greek, and Greek is a different language than English. Um, (laughs) Greek works differently. Uh, In English, we have question words, right? We have words that we put on the front of a, a sentence to let people know that it's a question. Uh, Words like why, who, what, how, are, are you the Messiah, the Son of the Blessed One, right? In Greek, they don't do that. Biblical Greek, they don't have those question words on the front of a sentence. That's not how it works. The word are would not be at the front of this sentence in Greek. Instead, questions in Greek are written just like a statement, And you have to infer from the context that it's a question, which I know sounds really confusing. But if we uh, pull up Dan's literal version for a second, we could translate this. Again, the high priest asked him, you are the Messiah, the son of the blessed one? Does that kind of make sense, that difference? I see people nodding, which is good, because we could do the same thing to Jesus' answer if we wanted to. We could make this... The high priest asked him, you are the Messiah, the son of the blessed one? Jesus answered, I am? (laughs) That's really funny, right? Like, snarky Jesus is the best. Um, Jesus does this same thing way more explicitly in the next chapter when he appears before Pontius Pilate, uh, the Roman governor of the region. Pilate is like, you are the king of the Jews, and Jesus is like, if you say so. Like, that's kind of how Jesus, that's about how seriously Jesus takes these proceedings. Our Bible translators tone the snark down a bit, which is fine. Um, It doesn't make much of a difference in the story, really, because it's the next line Jesus says that seals his fate. Verse 62. Jesus said, I am, or I am. And you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of the power and coming with the clouds of heaven. It's a reference to the Son of Man passage in Daniel 7. We've talked about that a bit here. Jesus basically pointing to this text where God comes to deliver the people. Jesus basically claiming to be God here. Verse 63. Then the high priest tore his clothes and said, Why do we still need witnesses? You have heard his blasphemy. What is your decision? All of them condemned him as deserving death. Some began to spit on him, to blindfold him, and to strike him, saying to him, Prophesy, 
The guards also took him and beat him. It's a terrible scene. This sort of display would be really difficult to watch. And I know that because I've seen stuff like this before. This rings some bells for me. If this scene happened today, if we had like body cam footage from the priestly guards, there'd be protests in the streets, right? It would be all over the news. We'd be talking about it. Our society would probably polarize over it, right? Like we do over everything. There'd be one side saying, justice for Jesus, you know, marching in the street. While on the other side, you'd have like elected officials, uh, lawyers for the Sanhedrin saying, he should have followed the law. He should have complied. Jesus is a criminal. That footage is out of context. We don't usually talk about the death of Jesus in sort of a, a legal perspective as a criminal justice issue, but that is exactly what Mark is inviting us to do and how he tells this story. The focus is on the failing of the criminal justice system. And remember, this gospel is being written to Christians probably in and around Rome, many of whom are facing injustice and persecution from their local criminal justice system. This would have resonated with them. At the heart of our faith, at the heart of the gospel story, is a story about the criminal justice system failing the Savior of the world. That should matter to us. That should affect us on some level. That should shake us up a bit and affect the way we talk and think about criminal justice today. This is a topic that will divide people really quickly. Police reform, prison reform, bail reform. We get really emotional. We retreat into our camps. We start hurling accusations at the other side, rushing to defend ourselves. But as Christians, maybe our first big takeaway from this is we need to be the most realistic, the most clear-eyed, the most practical, the most level-headed when it comes to discussion of criminal justice because this is at the heart of our story. Our justice system is not that much different from what they had back then. It's better for sure. We have advanced in the last 2,000 years, thank God, but it's not that different. Just like back then, we have checks and balances in our system that are designed to protect the innocent and ensure fairness. And just like back then, those checks and balances often fail. The Sanhedrin were running their legal system straight out of the Bible, and they still screwed it up. Do we really think like Thomas Jefferson got it better? <laughs> A little joke. Sorry. We've got to be level-headed and clear-eyed about this because as Christians, we believe in sin. We believe that human beings are imperfect. We have biases. We have prejudices. We get things wrong, and over time, those biases work their ways into the systems we build, no matter how good they are. To flesh this out a bit, I've got three numbers I want to share with you, three statistics. 0.7%. Um, 38% and 74%. You can remember that, right? <laughs> no. Uh, if you're the note-taking type, these would be uh, statistics, numbers worth writing down. 
0.7% is the percentage of Americans in the prison system. 0.7%, roughly one in 42 Americans are behind bars. That probably doesn't sound that high, right? Like 0.7, it's not even 1%. That's the highest percentage of any country on the planet. Our country, the United States, home of the free, we lock up a bigger percent of our population than China, than Russia, than Saudi Arabia. One in 142 people. That percentage, by the way, it's doubled since 1985. Back then, we only locked up about one in 300, one in 280, somewhere in there. Um, so we've either become much more prone to crime as a society over the last 37 years. I was born in 85, so it's probably my fault. Um, or there's something else going on here. There's something that's not right. Second statistic is 38%. Um, that's the percentage of our prison population that's African-American, 38%. Again, if you have nothing to compare it to, that might not sound that bad, but African-Americans only make up 12% of our population as a country, 12%, and yet 38% of our prisoners. That is unjust. There is no way around that. The numbers don't lie. The imbalances that exist in our current justice system disproportionately affect people of color. By the way, that number also started ticking up uh, in the 1970s. We ended segregation as a country and we started locking people up. This is one way to interpret those numbers. This last statistic, though, this is the one I find just absolutely maddening. This one's from 2020, so it might have changed marginally, but 74% is the percentage of people imprisoned in the United States who have not been found guilty of a crime. Three quarters of the people in our prison system have not been found guilty of a crime. It's like, what? How can that be? Um, this comes from a 2020 report by the Prison Policy Initiative. A big chunk of this is people who are awaiting trial, people who couldn't post bail, who often will sit in prison for years waiting for their chance to defend themselves. That's years away from family, years away from community, years away from employment. Big chunk of that is also people who take plea bargains at the urging of public defenders who are massively overworked. 74% of our prisoners have not been found guilty of a crime. That's the average nationwide. Varies a bit state by state. If we take the story that Bobby just read for us a few minutes ago seriously, that should not sit well with us. That should bother us. I moved out to California uh, back in 2011 for school so I was out there when like Black Lives Matter was getting going. Um, I was out there for the death of Trayvon Martin, Michael Brown. Um, and I remember the school I went to, Fuller Seminary, School for Pastors, um, had this sculpture, the crucifixion of Jesus. I've got a picture of it in the slides. Um, it's huge. Like I'm probably about as tall as that guy's arm. It's this big statue, very striking and powerful image. I used to walk by that every day. 
And I remember in 2013, <clears throat> I was going to class one day. I walked by that sculpture, and someone had put a T-shirt on Jesus that said, I can't breathe. That's the moment something clicked for me. I made a connection that I'm embarrassed to say I hadn't made before, something I hadn't seen. Jesus was the victim of a broken legal system. There were safeguards in place, best practices, laws, norms, but an innocent man still winds up dead by the end of this story. That's unjust. As Christians, we have to see the face of Jesus in those who are failed by our criminal justice system. We have to. We don't have a choice if we take this story seriously. On that t-shirt, the I Can't Breathe shirt, <clears throat> whoever made this included a reference to Matthew 25:40. I think it says. Um, Matthew 25 is the story of the sheep and the goats. It's this vision, this kind of parable almost, Jesus tells of the last judgment. Um, you know, the king, God, Jesus, he comes, he calls all the people before him, separates the righteous for the wicked. You know, one group goes off to inherit the kingdom of heaven. The other group goes into the lake of fire. Very Old Testament story, especially for the New Testament. And the scary part is that the basis of that judgment isn't what church you went to or what God you prayed to or what you believe, there wasn't like a theological test. The basis of that judgment is how we treated the least of these, how we treat those at the margins. And Jesus explicitly mentions prisoners. I was hungry, you didn't feed me. I was thirsty, you gave me nothing to drink. I was in prison and you didn't visit me. And that verse reads, Truly I tell you, just as you did it to one of the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did it to me. As Christians, we've got to be clear-eyed about this stuff. We've got to be practical, level-headed, and realistic when we have conversations about criminal justice. We've got to see Jesus in the face of the oppressed. And a third and final piece of application is to act. We need to leverage whatever power we have to make a difference on this stuff. Often I think when we talk about these topics, when we're talking about like criminal justice reform, when we're looking at statistics, you know, 74%, 0.7%, it feels so huge. It's like, what can I actually do about any of this? But there's actually a lot we can do. When I look around this room, I see a lot of power and influence. You all have voices. You all have resources. You all have energy and connections. Leverage some of that power. Steward that influence to make a change. Consider giving to organizations and ministries that are working toward prison reform. Write your elected leaders. Tell them where you stand on this topic as a Christian and a voter. Write an op-ed for the newspaper or put a testimony online about how your faith convicts you on this. Learn about efforts out there toward bail reform 
ending for-profit prisons, other measures that are starting to chip away at some of those numbers, just barely. Talk to your friends and vote. If you're not sure where to begin, you can come talk to me. I will point you in directions. I can connect you with other people who've worked on this stuff a lot longer than I have. We'll point you the right way. There is so much we can do to make a difference on this. And this is a discipleship issue, you guys. We're literally at the climax of Mark's gospel. This is core to our faith. Jesus died at the hands of a broken criminal justice system. No one should ever have to do that again. Not if we believe that Jesus died once and for all. Let's pray. God, it's shocking to see how Jesus was treated by the criminal justice system of his day. And it's shocking when we see many of those injustices mirrored in our own day, Lord. Help us to see your image reflected in the least of these. Help us to use our power and our influence to change the systems we have in place and create new ones that better reflect the reality of your kingdom. And God, we pray for your kingdom. May it come on earth as it is in heaven to bring an end to injustice and set things right once and for all. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed what you heard, please be sure to rate, review, and subscribe to this podcast on iTunes. You can connect with us on Facebook at Brockport First Baptist, on Twitter at BrockportFB, and on our website, BrockportFirstBaptist.org. Our theme music was composed by Scott Holmes. This has been a production of Brockport First Baptist.